Uh, I'm Jamie Duggan, the intern here at Wallace Presbyterian Church, and I'll be preaching the sermon today. I also welcome you uh, if you're visiting us, and I'm glad that you could join us for worship this morning. Our sermon passage is Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, 
and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together for the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this text to us, that we would understand it, and that we would receive comfort from it in our own times of affliction. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt forsaken? Maybe your parents forgot to pick you up from school. Maybe a friend left you in the lurch when you really needed them. Maybe you hit a crisis in your life and realized you had nobody you could depend on. In this psalm, David retells his experience of being forsaken. And Mike really set me up for this sermon a couple weeks ago because he did a he covered a whole psalm of lament already, and he's explained to you about lament psalms, and here we have another lament psalm, a psalm that comes right out of David's experience of suffering as he brings that suffering to the Lord. I've said in previous sermons, if you've been there, that uh, in this section of the Psalter, Psalms 18 to 24, the main theme is kingship. The theme of kingship is introduced for the first time since Psalm 2. David is no longer treated just as a faithful individual who worships God, but he's treated as God's chosen king, his anointed Messiah. Psalm 18 recounts God's miraculous deliverance of this king, and Psalm 20 and 21 have assured us that God will always save this king. But now, David is plunged into trouble once again, and it seems like God has gone back on his promise has forsaken him. And David must learn how to persevere when it seems like God has abandoned him. We're going to see four points in this psalm. First, we're going to see that God's king is forsaken. We're going to try to understand David's experience of being forsaken. Second, we're going to see that the king still trusts in God. Third, we are going to see that the king shares what he has learned about God. And fourth and finally, we're going to see how this psalm points us forward to Jesus. So we're going to see the king forsaken by God. We're going to see the king persevering in his trust in God. We're going to see the king teaching others about what God has done for him. And then finally, we're going to connect it to Jesus. So the first point, the king forsaken. David cries out in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a jarring contrast after the assurances of Psalms 18.20 and 21. Psalm 18.50, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Psalm 26, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Psalm 21.7 For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. But now it feels like all the promises have come untrue. 
God has forsaken him and left him to stand alone against his enemies. And yet already here in the first verse of the psalm, we also see this note of faith. David still calls God, my God. David is hurt and confused as to why God seems far away and distant, but he refuses to give up on God and go serve another. God is still his God. And so, it is to God that he will address his questions. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. That last word, groaning, I think is actually a little bit of a weak translation. Really, David is roaring. That's the word that's used. He's screaming himself hoarse. There's no answer. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And if David has been forsaken by God, he's certainly been forsaken by everyone else as well. Humanity as a whole has forsaken him. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. David has been cast out of the human race. He feels their disgust so vividly that he is like a worm. When people see him, they jump back in revulsion. But even worse are the words they mock him with. Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They rub God's absence in his face. I thought you were God's chosen king, his Messiah. Where is your God now? God really loves you. Why hasn't he rescued you? But David's enemies don't just mock him. They threaten to devour him, surrounding him like wild animals. Look at verses 12 to 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And again in verses 16 to 18, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. David's enemies are those bulls from the rodeo that can toss a man like a paper doll. They're snarling, rabid dogs. They are the lions that mercilessly tear at the soft flesh of their prey. Think the hyenas from Lion King, and you about have the right idea. They've pierced his hands and his feet. The verb here is a little difficult. Maybe it means pierced, maybe it means bound or something else. But pierced fits as well as any other meaning. And it is the point that it is the translation the ancient Greek has. Uh, the point being that David is immobilized, whatever, whatever we do with the verb. And not only is he immobilized, he's frail and emaciated as well. He's so thin that he can count his bones. He's helpless in the midst of this pack of wild animals, unable to fight back. They, these animals, they no longer even worry about delivering the killing blow. They've already moved on to bargaining as to who is going to get his property and his clothing. 
You can also feel that vivid sense of being seen and stared at. As the philosopher Sartre reminds us, there's nothing quite like the human gaze of someone who's hostile to you to make you feel objectified and dehumanized. They stare at him in hostility and mockery. David describes the physical effects of this suffering in verses 14 to 15. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David is melting away like water or wax. He's all dried up, unable even to speak a word in his defense. He may as well be dead already. I'd like to pause a minute and note the boldness of David's address to God here. Sometimes we might feel that we need to come to God with carefully edited prayers, that we need to have all our theology straight before he'll listen to us. Maybe we've got the impression that as Christians, we ought to have it all together. Uh, That when we suffer, it shouldn't really affect us. Does this prayer seem like something you could pray to God? Could you ask him why he has abandoned you? Or would you be afraid to put the point that bluntly? The Psalms teach us that we can come to God with the full gravity of our situation. It is even okay to speak to God out of the way the situation appears to us, out of the forsakenness or the abandonment we feel. We don't need to have it all together. We don't need to tone down our suffering. David shows us this balance of faith. In suffering, he refuses to give up on God. He refuses to let God go. God is my God. At the same time, He's brutally honest with God that he feels like God has abandoned him. Can it be appropriate for a believer to be so short with God, so real? Well, this is God's inspired prayer book. God is giving us permission here to be real with him. That's a very important thing for you to know in the midst of suffering. I wonder if any of you have ever felt the way David feels here. Maybe you feel that way now. Maybe you feel socially isolated and lonely. Maybe you look around you and you see only mockers and enemies in the world, but no true friends. Kids, have you ever felt like you don't have any friends? Like you're alone? That nobody understands you? You can tell God that, just like David did. You can bring your prayer to God. Have you ever felt like a worm? Like other people found you disgusting? Like you were just a burden to them? Or worst of all, have you ever felt that God had rejected you? That he was done with you? That he'd abandoned you? Or maybe you felt like God has abandoned this world. Maybe you look at the death, the evil, the oppression in this world. We've had a lot of darkness recently. 
coronavirus and all the death and conflict and dissension that it's brought to our country? This week, a video with the shooting of another unarmed black man and the unwillingness of local authorities to pursue justice. There are a lot of reasons to feel like God has forsaken this world. And it's important for us to be able to admit that. We need to let ourselves feel the weight of it, to not dismiss it or deny our feelings of God-forsakenness. David brings his God-forsakenness to God. In verse 8, the mockers say that they describe David by saying, He trusts in the Lord. This verb occurs a couple times in the Psalms. It literally means to roll away. David is rolling away his troubles to the Lord. He's putting them on God because he knows that God is the one who can deal with them. And God accepts those troubles. He doesn't reject David's prayer. He lets it be in his Bible. God has room for our God-forsakenness. He can take it if we tell him we're feeling that way. He wants us to bring it to him. He won't turn us away when we do. So that's our first point. The king is forsaken by God. Second point. The king still trusts in God. In this first part of the psalm, you may have noticed that woven in between these heartbreaking roars of David for help, we find meditations on God's faithfulness to his people. Even though everything in David's present experience says that God has forsaken him, he still holds on to the theology that tells him that that's not true. Look at verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David reminds himself that God is holy, high and lifted up. God is seated on his throne. And God is praised by Israel. Why is God praised? Well, it's because they remember his past acts of faithfulness. Israel may have been through tough times, But when they cried out to God, they were delivered. I wonder what moments David remembers here. Does he remember God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah, giving them a son? Does he remember God's care for Jacob, keeping him safe through his long travels? Does he remember the moment when God delivered Israel from the chariots of Egypt at the Red Sea? Does he remember the moment when God defended Israel from the violent attack of Sisera and his army? David doesn't specify, but there are so many stories already of God's faithfulness for him to turn to in his time. God did not let his people be put to shame. So David knows that God has proved himself faithful to his people in the past. But then there's an objection, right, in the next verse. But I. Maybe David is thinking here, I'm the exception. God may have been faithful to them, but he will not be faithful to me. And so, to counteract this, David moves on to meditate on God's past faithfulness shown to him, specifically in his life. 
verses 9 to 11. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Today is Mother's Day, by the way. If, uh, if you're watching the service in the room with your mother, uh, kids, I'm talking to you especially, maybe turn to her and say thank you. Um, if you've forgotten to buy a gift for your mother, maybe you want to open another tab in your browser and you start working on that now. But since it's Mother's Day, it's good for us to be reminded how often Scripture compares God's love to a mother's love. That the love we receive from our mothers from our very first days is a picture of the even greater nurturing love of God. David remembers that God's faithfulness has followed him from the beginning. God brought him safe from the womb. Just as a newborn child must depend entirely on its mother for nourishment, so David learns to trust in God as an infant. David's childhood is an example of the blessing we sometimes wish on our covenant children, that they would not remember a day when they did not know the Lord. Sometimes we hear the opinion that only adults with uh, developed intellectual capacities are really capable of faith. I'm not going to get into that issue too much today. I'll just point out that this is a very difficult text for that view. David can say of God that he was my God from before he was even able to say the words. He reminds himself of God's long track record of faithfulness in his own life as he pleads with God not to be far off from his trouble now. Then, finally, David's faith culminates in the desperate pleas of verses 19 to 21. Having remembered God's faithfulness, he throws himself once more upon God for help. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Though all the mockers tell David that God has forsaken him, though David's own heart tells him that God has forsaken him, he still cries out to God for his help. Just like the fathers he's remembered in the past, he trusts in God that he will not be put to shame. David doesn't turn away from God though it must have been a huge temptation to do so. Even in his God-forsakenness, David still holds on to God as my God. In this, David is an example to us of the power of faith. Faith doesn't mean denying the reality of suffering. Faith doesn't mean that we say we feel close to God, even when we don't. Faith faces the desperation of our situation with full honesty, And it feels the sting of God's absence deeply, yet it still holds on to God. In this, faith is to be distinguished from a complaining, despairing attitude, which voices our God-forsakenness, but also turns away from God because of it, and no longer sees God as my God. Faith is also to be distinguished from denial, or a shallow Pollyanna mentality that that tries to sweep all our suffering under the rug by looking on the bright side, so that we only admit to clean, tidy emotions that make us look like good Christians. Faith can hold on to God even when that all comes apart. 
David's faith is a challenge to us to seek to grow in our own faith. I, I know it's a challenge to me as somebody who generally takes the sweeping under the rug option and tries to ignore my negative emotions rather than bringing them to God in prayer. This passage exhorts us to meditate on God's faithfulness to his people throughout history and even more on God's faithfulness to us in our own lives as a way to hold on to God even when we are tempted to think he has forsaken us. So, that's our second point. God's king still trusts in him. But then something interesting happens in the psalm. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, In the second half of verse 21, it suddenly shifts into a different tense. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. Suddenly, David is talking about God's redeeming him in the past, having, from the perspective of having emerged on the other side of the trial. Um, some commentators are uncomfortable with this drastic shift of perspective in the middle of a verse, and there are different explanations for it. Some people think that David is still in the midst of his trial, but that he's imagining God's deliverance in the future. Other people think that he's writing the psalm in the future, and he's imagining his context back in the trial. Other people think maybe he wrote half of the psalm at one time and then finished it off after he'd been delivered. I don't really think it's important to nail this down because I think the main point that comes is that as David hands this psalm over to the worship in the temple and to God's people, he wants us to inhabit these two different moments and feel both of them very vividly, like we're right there with David. He wants us to be able to feel and experience the depths of his God-forsakenness, the pain and loneliness of it, and also feel and experience the joy of deliverance, the praise that comes from realizing that God has saved him. And so, halfway through the psalm, he shifts us forward into the time of a song of thanksgiving. Take a look at verses 22 to 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Now that David has been so gloriously saved, he doesn't want to just keep it to himself. He wants to share it with God's whole people. The word for con- that's translated congregation here is actually the word from which we ultimately get our word church. Uh, in this context, in the time David is, uh, is writing this, it refers to the assembly of Israel as they gather together at God's sanctuary in the one place he's chosen to worship him together. David wants his praise to overflow from him to the whole people of God so that they can share with him in what he has learned about God. Verse 25 elaborates this. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. David refers to the practice of the time that when a believer was in desperate trouble, they would cry out to God for help and make a vow. And then, when they were delivered... They would bring a sacrifice in fulfillment of that vow. And part of bringing that sacrifice to God's sanctuary was for them to publicly proclaim their testimony about how God had saved them from their trouble. No doubt, 
more than a few of the Psalms are actually in our Bible because they were produced from, through this sort of uh, practice. So what is it that David has learned about God that he wants to teach to the people? The theme verse for this could well be verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. and He has not hidden his face from it, but has heard when he cried to him. Although David's enemies and his own experience told him that God had forsaken him, God does not forsake him. God doesn't look on David as a worm. He is not disgusted by him. He does not recoil in revulsion. God does not turn away or hide his eyes from David's affliction. Instead, he listens to him. He comes near to him. He helps him. David puts this another way in verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Not only has God delivered David, he loves to deliver all the poor and the oppressed who call out to him. God loves to upset the world's expectations, to take those that the world has scorned and despised and persecuted and exalt them into his favor while throwing down all worldly ambitions. In the following verses, David envisions his praise flowing out even beyond the gathered worshipers of Israel out of the world as a whole. Look at verses 27 to 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This set of Psalms from 18 to 24, as I've mentioned, has brought the theme of God's chosen king into focus, but here David reminds us that behind this earthly king, God is the king of the whole earth. It is God's kingdom which is the highest, most real kingship. <clears throat> Excuse me. David envisions that through the news of his deliverance, the praise of God might spill out into the nations, so that God's kingship might be recognized in the whole earth. Verse 29 continues this theme. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. It's not just the poor and the afflicted and the oppressed who are going to submit themselves to God's rule, but also the wealthy. Though they think that they are great and may have looked down on and disdained the poor, they will have to acknowledge that they are but mortals, that all their greatness must smolder into ashes and dust when compared to the everlasting might of God. The last phrase is a little difficult to understand. It says, either he cannot make himself live, or my faith lives to him, as the ancient Greek translation has it. Either way, it seems to underscore the point. Our lives depend on God, and so even the greatest of us humans must recognize his kingship. In the final two verses, David envisions this praise extending down through time. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. David envisions his story joining the stories that he remembered back in verses 4 to 5 of the fathers who were delivered when they cried to God for help. He imagines those babies that are still to come who will be in relationship to God from their very birth and grow up hearing the stories of how God has saved him. His story, the story of what God has done, will be passed on from generation to generation and his praise will bring to a new generation a sign of God's faithfulness to them, which they can hold on to in their own hard times. This point reminds us what a great encouragement we can be to each other as Christians. As we come to know God's faithfulness to us more deeply, praise is a natural response. We ought to share our joy with our fellow believers so that we can all participate together in the joy of knowing God. In 1 Corinthians 12.26, Paul says of the church, If one member suffers together, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let me encourage you, as a congregation, share God's faithfulness with one another. Tell each other the stories about what God has done for you. Parents, Tell your children about the hard times in your life and how God brought you through them. Friends, confide your difficulties in one another. Pray through them together and rejoice together in God's deliverance. This is part of what we hope will be happening through our home group ministry, that we'll be able to share our lives with each other so that we can share in our praise of God. So that's the third point. The king shares what he has learned about God with God's people, leading to this explosion of praise. Final point. How does this psalm connect to Jesus? This actually, I don't know if you heard any echoes of New Testament passages you're familiar with or that we read here in the service, but this is one of the most important psalms when it comes to New Testament citations of of connecting Old Testament psalms to Jesus. David's description of his suffering in this psalm may at times rely on hyperbole, uh, a vivid overstatement to communicate the depth of his feeling. David, I don't think, literally had his hands pierced. Um, He didn't literally um, have his, uh, he didn't literally die, he didn't literally have his clothing divided up. But for what, what is hyperbole from the mouth of David is a prophecy from the Holy Spirit pointing forward to David's greater son, Jesus. You see, Jesus is forsaken by his disciples, abandoned to a crowd of vicious men. Jesus' hands and feet are pierced through, and he is lifted up as an object of scorn and derision, as the soldiers who have stripped him naked cast lots to divide his garments. He is mocked by all who pass by, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They echo the sign above his head. He is the king of Israel. What kind of a king can this be? So powerless and despised by all humanity. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He trusts in God, 
Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They turned Jesus' own claims back against him. How can he be God's son when he is hung on a tree? The very sign of being under God's curse. This God who was supposed to be his father, who chose him, who loves him, where is he now? Surely he is despised and rejected him as well. Even the robbers on his right and on his left take up the mocking refrains. Christ is left all alone. As Darkness falls and blots out the sky. Jesus roars in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out in his heart language of Aramaic. What can it mean for Jesus to say these words? For God's only begotten Son to be forsaken by His Father. Friends, we stand on the threshold of a deep mystery here. I don't think we should say what some people say, that the eternal fellowship of the Trinity is broken here at Calvary, because God can't change. And the eternal blessed communion of the three-in-one cannot be interrupted even for a second. And yet, as I say that, I don't want to deny that it is God who is forsaken by God here. But it is God in the flesh who is forsaken and is precisely within the confines of his flesh as a man that he bears his forsakenness. This pushes the doctrine of the incarnation to its limits. That God who cannot suffer takes upon himself in his human flesh uh, the depths of suffering. It is such a very human loneliness. We can hear here the cry of every motherless child as Jesus draws all human suffering into himself. And it is as a man that Jesus is forsaken by God. And so he sanctifies this cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you wondered if it was okay to pray this, and David's example wasn't enough for you, see Christ utter these words. See him give loud voice to the experience of abandonment by God. There is yet another side to this mystery. We saw that in the midst of his God-forsakenness, David still trusted in God. And after his deliverance, he looked back with a very different perspective, that God had not despised his affliction, but had heard his cry. And with Christ as well, in this much greater trial, we see that Jesus holds on to both sides of the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he is forsaken, but he also refuses to let go of God. God will still be his God. He will choose God even when God has rejected him. But has God rejected him? Is Jesus really forsaken by God? Jesus must persevere in faith that he is not ultimately forsaken. We who have the end of the story can see that Christ was not ultimately forsaken, right? Our psalm is echoed 
In Hebrews 5, 7, where we read, In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And so Jesus is heard precisely because of his faithful perseverance in choosing to trust in God. We have to be careful to do full justice to both sides of the mystery here. Jesus is truly forsaken. He is under the wrath of God. It's an objective experience for him. There is no heavenly dove descending, no light from heaven, no voice from his Father to assure the Son of his pleasure, only darkness. The Father's face is turned away. The Son, in his humanity, suffers this absence of God to the utmost degree. He refuses to use his divine power to lessen this suffering even one bit, for he knows that he must take it all upon himself to complete the work of our salvation. Jesus is truly man, which means he had a natural human fear of death. And just as it was absurd to all those watching that this pitiful human could be God's chosen king, so this absurdity must have struck Jesus' human mind with the same force. Jesus cannot see God's love with his eyes. He must believe in it by faith. It requires him to trust in the promises God has given him, to persevere through every evidence of the opposite. He must believe that God will not utterly forsake him, even as he experiences the deepest God-forsakenness a human has ever known. Jesus suffers all of this in perfect faith. And this does not exclude roaring out in pain to God. But in doing so, Jesus refuses to let go of God as my God. And in his final breath, he commends his spirit into the hands of his Father in a final act of trust. What does this mystery mean? It means that God himself has entered into the depths of human forsakenness by God. Prodigal Christian, no matter how far you run from God, you will find that the Son of God has run ahead to meet you there. Are you tempted to think that God has given up on you? Does the face of heaven seem dark to you? Does this gate seem locked shut? Does God seem to have only wrath and no grace? You can still meet God here. God has not despised the affliction of the afflicted, but has entered into it in his Son. Jesus has borne a forsakenness far deeper than you will ever know. And so he is guaranteed that God will be with you at all times, even in your moments of feeling God's forsakenness the most. No matter how much it seems that God has forsaken you, it cannot be true. Christ has died for you. He has canceled the wrath for your sin by taking it upon himself. He has given you his perfect righteous record as the one who persevered in faith. All your failures of faith are covered here. The times of denial, the times when you raged at God and fled from him in your suffering, Christ gives you his perfect record 
instead. All this doesn't mean that you will never feel God's absence. But you will have Jesus to look to as an assurance of the invisible reality of God's unfailing love for you. I want you to hear Jesus' words to you today from Hebrews 13.5 I will never leave you nor forsake you. Understand what it cost him to be able to say those words. In his heroic battle through God-forsakenness on the cross, Jesus has earned the right to say those words to you. I will never forsake you. Because it was for you that he suffered. Hebrews 2, 11-12 also quotes our psalm. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. Verses 14 to 15 go on to explain. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus chooses to accept humanity with all the suffering that would come with it so that he could call us his brothers and sisters. Remember this word, in the midst of the assembly I will praise you. This word assembly is just the word church. There wouldn't be one if it wasn't for Jesus. There would be no church to praise God. But now Christ stands in the midst of an assembly of redeemed, saved sinners who can praise God for what he has done. Jesus enters into the depths of loneliness and forsakenness so that we might share in the joy of praising God with him forever. Maybe as we read the last verses of this psalm, you realize that they can hardly be true of David in their full sense. Maybe some of the surrounding nations did become more aware of God through David's praises. But in Christ, we see the real fulfillment of these words. Through Jesus, God's praise rolls forth, breaking through ethnic and national barriers, going to the ends of the earth, saving people of every tribe and nation and language. The poor and the oppressed are liberated from the enslaving power of Satan and given the right to be sons and daughters of God because Jesus has been pleased to call them siblings. God's praise rolls down through the generations as parents pass the faith on to a new generation. Good news for all the afflicted of the earth. Today I proclaim this good news to you on Jesus' behalf. God has not despised your affliction. He has not hidden his face from you. In the forsakenness of Jesus Christ, God has come near you in your forsakenness. And because God has heard and saved Jesus Christ, you are heard and you are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as forsaken as we may feel, you have not left us alone. You have not despised us. You have not treated us like worms. But you have come near us in love. You have embraced us in the love of your Son. We thank you for his work on our behalf. We thank you for his death on the cross that he 
took our suffering upon him, our God-forsakenness upon him, and defeated it at the cross. We pray that you be with us. Work this reality deep into our very being, that we would rejoice and praise this free forgiveness and grace that we have in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.